Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Rachel Horman-Brown. Now, Rachel is a director and solicitor and the head of the family department at Watson Ramsbottom, based in the UK. She specialises in cases of domestic abuse and stalking, with a very fast-growing niche practice in cases involving coercive control. Rachel is known for her ability to recognise coercive control cases, even when the victim may not fully realise it, and strives to ensure that the court recognise coercive control for the high risk factor that it is. Rachel has, throughout her career, worked at the forefront of campaigns for domestic abuse and stalking legislation. And her work has been recognised with many national awards, including in 2016, Rachel was highly commended as Woman Lawyer of the Year at the National Law Society Excellent Awards. So I am super excited to welcome Rachel to the show. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I'm so honoured to have you here. You are one of my personal go-to experts in this field. So would you mind telling my listeners a little bit about what you do? Okay. So my name is uh, Rachel Horman. I'm a solicitor and I specialise in cases involving coercive control and stalking. So it's family law, but with that particular specialisation, most of my clients are victims of one of the other um, of those things. So it's very emotive. Um, Some of my clients are very much high risk clients. So they are at risk of um, significant harm or homicide. Um, So they are really serious cases and something that I found that the system, whether that be the family law system or the criminal law system, don't really take these cases seriously enough. So whilst there are changes afoot, um, they're still behind the times really. Um, I'm also the chair of Paladin, which is the National Stalking Advocacy Service. It's the only one in the world. And we advocate on behalf of high-risk stalking victims. And a lot of that is doing safety planning with the victim or advocating with the police in relation to, you know, why aren't you taking this seriously? Have you thought about this particular charge? Because often the police don't really think about um, stalking. They'll prosecute incidents as they come individually rather than together. Um, So they might say, well, that's a criminal damage. Um, And often Paladin's job or my job as a lawyer is to say to them, well, have you thought about linking this incident to the last 40 incidents and actually thinking about a charge of stalking? Um, So that's really satisfying work um, for me, the charity side of it. And within that, we campaigned for the law of coercive control. That became a criminal offence in 2015 after a fairly short campaign, to be fair, 
um, from Paladin, um, highlighting the gap in the legislation and that many, many victims were being failed by the lack of tools that the police had to prosecute. One of the cases that I used to highlight this to politicians um, was one of my own cases where one of my clients was forced to eat all of her meals from a dog bowl on the floor in the kitchen. And she went to the police to report that. And the police said, well, come back when he hits you. And at the time, a lot of people were shocked by that. But to be fair to the police, they had very limited resources or very limited laws even to hang that offence on. It wasn't really a criminal offence. So we used that to highlight, you know, really how much it was needed. And fairly quickly, the government came on board. And we advised the government about what the legislation needed um, to look like. They listened, obviously, to some of it, not all of it. It's actually being amended again as part of the domestic abuse bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. Um, but as soon as it became a criminal offence, I was flooded with inquiries from uh, victims, mainly women, but not just women, saying, this has been happening to me for the last 20 years. I've finally got a phrase I can use to describe it. Nobody understood it. Unfortunately, it's not retrospective, which means you can't go backwards. So it's only in respect of offences after the 29th of December 2015. But it is something, I think, that potentially could revolutionise the way we look at domestic abuse. And it's early days, really, in terms of this being used by the courts. Of course, people might have heard of the case of Sally Challen. Uh, she was convicted of, of murdering her husband. And what the courts didn't look at when, when she was convicted was the fact that she'd been a victim of coercive control for a long time, um, and that wasn't taken into account. And so an appeal was launched on the back of it becoming a criminal offence, and Sally um, was released and is now involved with her son in relation to campaigning for victims like her that were really let down by the system that would only recognise a black eye rather than the emotional and psychological abuse. So sorry, that's a really long answer to that short question. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, you do so much and you do so much good work. Um, explain a little bit about what coercive control is for my listeners, because I know that in many cases you find that victims come to you and maybe they don't even know that their mm. case is one that involves coercive control. So can you explain yeah. that? So coercive control, you might call it um, emotional abuse. Um, it's a particular type of emotional abuse. And to me, I would describe it as being the essence of domestic abuse and is present in all domestic abuse cases. It's a pattern of behaviour. And it's, it's that power dynamic that keeps the victim tied to the perpetrator it's exactly why women find it difficult to leave um, and it, it basically explains the power and control dynamic um, between the two um, so it isn't defined within the law intentionally because it's very difficult to say it's xyz it will be different things to different people um, somebody who is coercively controlling their partner will tend to um, attack that person in terms of what they hold dear, whether that be the children, animals, their career, their family. Um, you know, we all tell our 
partner's secrets and things that we don't tell anybody else. Often that is then used against a victim. If you don't do what I say or if you ever try and leave, I'm going to tell your employer, your mother, the children. Perhaps somebody has photographs, uh, intimate photographs or embarrassing photographs. I'm going to disclose those if you ever leave. And that's a really powerful tool for a perpetrator. Um, because, you know, we all have secrets and things that we'd prefer certain people didn't know. And we should be able to trust our partner with that information. And unfortunately, often that's used against victims. But it's a pattern of behaviour. So it's the drip effects. And coercive control can't be summed up in even one or two incidents. It's the constant pattern of it which grinds them, the victim, means that they feel powerless, unable to leave. It becomes a situation where, you know, you could describe it as leaving the cage door open for a budgie and the budgie never goes out because actually the budgie's been conditioned to stay in the cage and it's too scared. And a lot of women will say that, that, you know, even when he went to work and I could have run and I could have gone to the police, I was terrified to do it. And it's because of this coercive control. Um, I have clients that will say they had to ask for permission to use the bathroom. Um, they're timed every time they leave the house. You know, their text messages are read. So they have very little space to actually then go for help because there would be evidence on the telephone, perhaps, or, you know, you've been more than an hour doing the shopping. Um, it can be quite subtle. And often technology, et cetera, is used. Um, to assist the perpetrator in that. I have clients where there's CCTV cameras inside the house, not just outside, but actually in the kitchen, in, in, in the living room, even in the bathroom, so that the perpetrator might be at work, but he's actually watching the victim's movements all the time. So it's that constant policing, really, and it can take all sorts of different formats. But it's only when you put them together that you see really how significant it is. So it's kind of joining the dots up, really. Some people describe it as domestic terrorism, like being stalked within a relationship. But it's absolutely terrifying. It really is. And it's only when you look at them all together and think, gosh, imagine that happening every day. Um, you know, they're almost like prisoner of war tactics, really. So how do you get out if someone listening right now is thinking, gosh, that sounds like my situation. Those signs, are, I'm, I'm very familiar with those. Yeah, I know from my own experience working with so many people that we yeah. normalise and minimise those signs. I mean, sometimes we don't even realise it's going on. But so what can somebody do in that situation? Because it can be dangerous just to get up and leave, right? Yeah, it can. And actually, when you leave an abusive relationship, that is the most dangerous time, either on leaving or preparing to leave. Once the perpetrator realises that they don't have that ultimate power over the uh, victim, then things can change. And unfortunately, some perpetrators will take that to, to the ultimate act of, of murder, unfortunately, in too many cases, you know. More than two women a week are being murdered by their partners or ex-partners. So, you know, this is not scaremongering. This is reality, you know, and, and lots, lots more, um, you know, are seriously injured by, by uh, partners. So it is important that the victim is able to get out. But I think it's important that they get advice about it beforehand, ideally, 
and that it's a planned move um, with an expert who can help them plan, help them keep them safe when they've gone. Think about things of, you know, do you need to communicate with the perpetrator? Does the perpetrator need to know your whereabouts, you know, absolutely or vaguely or not at all? Do you need a court order or actually will that make things worse? Sometimes the best advice I give to my clients is let's not go anywhere near a court. And that might sound strange from a lawyer, but sometimes that is the best advice. So it's really important if the victim is able to get advice and to, to plan that, um, you know, that move because it will be, you know, the most significant move they make and what they do um, sometimes can't be undone. So, you know, the best advice obviously is make sure you take the children with you. Um, if you have children, and again, that might sound odd, but many victims um, will say, well, I got out on my own and I was going to go back and get the children I wanted to make sure everything was all sorted in the new house or whatever. And then they never able to get back and get the children. Um, so there are lots of things, some that I don't really want to discuss um, publicly because obviously, you know, perpetrators could, could see this. So there are some things that I'll only say privately to, to people about the tactic and, you know, the safety planning aspects. But there are lots of different things that victims can do. But getting advice and just talking to somebody, you know, don't feel as though when you pick up the phone that you're tied then and you have to leave. You know, it might take you, you know, uh, you know, some time to work it through in your mind and to, to make that decision final and to do it properly. Please pick up the phone and speak to somebody um, and, and start that journey. Yeah, really good advice. And reaching out to local domestic abuse charities like the, the DASH charity or, or Women's yeah. Aid or Safe yeah. Lives, I mean, those charities can support through that kind of thing. And then divorcing a, shall we call them, difficult person is That's a very nice. difficult <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of figure they take enough significance on their own. So let's just shrink yeah. it down. So divorcing a difficult person is a very different process to divorcing somebody. Maybe there's high conflict still, but ultimately you're working to a resolution and one yeah. party's one party not hell-bent on hurting the other. So what is your advice for... I mean, number one, choosing a lawyer for that process. And then how do you do it differently? What do you have to do that's different to a normal divorce? It is very different. And the first thing I would say to anyone in that situation is please do try and get a lawyer. Um, lots of things people can do without lawyers um, nowadays. And, you know, the divorce procedure, for example, is very straightforward and people can do that themselves without a lawyer. A divorce is more than just a piece of paper and there are always, in most cases, there are other things that need sorted out other than the divorce, you know, the decree absolutes. There might be children issues, property issues, etc. And that's when you do absolutely need a lawyer. I would say that you need somebody with a really good understanding of not just um, family law, because obviously family law is a fairly broad um, topic, but somebody that understands the dynamics of domestic abuse, um, in particular coercive control, um, working against a narcissist. It's a very, very different 
tactic, I think, that, that you use in those kind of cases. And what needs to be at the forefront of everything is your client's safety and the knowledge that you aren't dealing with a normal person on the other side, that almost everything they do may well be designed to attack, to hurt, to humiliate your client. And it's about keeping that to a minimum. And again, every case will be different in terms of the tactics that you need to use, but you just have to have that awareness um, so that you don't, you know, put your client at, at risk further. Um, mediation, I would say, is never to be attempted with, with a narcissist or in a, an abusive situation. It will just be used as a, a venue to continue that abuse. It can also be very dangerous. I've known clients that have been assaulted on their way to mediation. So whilst that is something that's pushed um, and generally is a good thing in most divorce cases, in these type of cases, it's absolutely not to be considered and can make it not just worse, but put, put the victim at, at risk. So, you know, you do need a lawyer that understands that, I think. And, you know, sometimes it's only through speaking to the lawyer that you get an idea, really, of whether they do understand it or whether they just say they understand it. And I think you also have to have a rapport with your lawyer as well because you're going to be spending, unfortunately, quite a bit of time with them, telling them things that you've perhaps never told anybody else. And you need to feel able to do that. It's no good getting to near the end. I do speak to a lot of people sometimes that are nearing the end of the process and then they'll say, I never told my lawyer this, this and this. And had they done that, it could have really changed the direction of the case. So you need somebody that you can completely open up with. You should be able to tell your lawyer everything and then let them decide which bits are the pieces that, that are going to be taken forward, really, for you. And also, I think it's important, you know, I speak to a lot of clients that sometimes are willing to agree to anything just to end the process. And again, it's very common when you're dealing with somebody who's been experiencing an abusive relationship. They don't want to stand up um, and battle with the perpetrator because they've spent the last 20 years doing that. But as a lawyer, it's important that you make them realise that that decision you know, can't be undone and that it's really important, sometimes particularly in relation to finances. Sometimes the best advice I can give somebody is, look, let's not even get into this now. Let's leave it for six months. We don't have to do the deal now. Let's leave it until you feel more emotionally able to, to cope with all of this. And it doesn't have to be the week after you leave. So, you know, it's about noticing in your client, I suppose, how well equipped they are to deal with with the emotional roller coaster, not just the legalities of it and the cost, you know, the financial cost is a huge problem sometimes for people. But emotionally and the, the toll that that takes on, on on your client, I think you have a duty to them to to be honest with them about what the whole process is likely to be about. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice. The there are tactics that lawyers can use to help protect their clients from the, the mental health aspects of this because sometimes, you know, I've seen it, that the lawyers become the mouthpiece for the abuse and yeah. getting those hard-hitting letters, there's certain yeah. law firms that 
for this moment will remain nameless, but <laughs> we seem to have you know, no bounds to the depths that they will sink to to intimidate, harass and bully the client to enable them to, to win for their own client. So what can you do to protect a client from a, a lawyer's perspective? I mean, I always suggest not sending, you know, those difficult emails without a summary and some hope, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, it depends on, on the client and, and how much information they want. Um, I have some clients, for example, that don't ever want the letter. Um, so they'll say, I find it too triggering when I get, you know, any emails from you really, or certainly ones that are enclosing any correspondence, because it is just that. It is their perpetrator speaking through a letter, basically. And sometimes the tone, the length, the amount of correspondence can be quite oppressive sometimes. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be scared to point that out and to say, you know, that there's no need for this volume of correspondence. Um, it is oppressive. It is designed to cause my client distress, really. And we're not going to respond to all of these, these emails. Um, but sometimes I will have clients where I will just say, I've had an email in, you know, I can give you a ring about it if you like, and they will never see the emails because they just don't want to. Um, and sometimes I will summarise it in an email myself, um, the gist of what they're saying, or ring them and just go through things. But very rarely would I ever read it word for word or anything like that because it is just them being the puppet for the um, for the perpetrator, really, to continue that. Um, and the letter can generally, you know, a seven-page letter can generally be summarised into, you know, very short, bite-sized pieces for the client. And I do think sometimes some lawyers write those letters to impress their clients who are, you know, obviously paying them a lot of money. You know, the cost of sending a seven-page letter, you know, will, will be expensive, obviously. And the perpetrator will be prepared to spend all of their money on, on things like this in order to crucify, you know, their ex-partner, which is pretty much what sometimes it seems they're trying to do. And it's not a sensible tactic. All they're doing is ensuring that neither party has enough money left at the end of it to, to live comfortably. Um, so it doesn't make sense, but that's not how narcissists work, is it? It's not about the sensible solution um and again it's about bearing that in mind that a narcissist you know will fight and fight and fight to the death um you know if they think there's a way of crippling the other side even if it means crippling themselves um so you know tactically you do have to have that in mind and try and find ways of closing that down and not allowing every single issue in the world to be aired in trial by correspondence. It's not, you know, a healthy thing to do. It just doesn't make any sense. But I do see it all the time. One of the reasons I've heard that lawyers will forward emails is that they say that they have to because obviously it's part of the process and that, yeah, I think that's the difference. I think some lawyers are much more well-equipped, like you, for example, to, to manage that process. And as going through, as I have, the, the process of divorce, you, you don't un understand as a layperson the ins and out of the legality so you're really yeah. at the mercy of your lawyer and yeah. I, it's actually a personal 
huge bugbear makes me incredibly angry and I don't do anger very often but (laughs) the letters that I have seen that have been sent to clients from lawyers and you know often it's it's a female lawyer to a female client Mm -hmm. and I just don't get it Rachel I don't know how they sleep at night I don't know how they say this is okay and I'm getting paid to do this so that I just don't get it yeah I mean, I suppose part of me likes to think that they don't realise what they're doing. They don't realise the impact of it. They don't see that they are representing a narcissist and and that what they're doing is is being a mouthpiece for him. You know, that that's what I like to think, I suppose, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, but, you know, you have to be able to sleep at night. In my view, there's nothing, you know, there's no money worth that. Um, you know, you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and, and think, you know, you've done a decent job and that you're a decent person. So I, I don't understand why why people would want to do that. And I don't think it actually helps their own client in the end either. That's the the strange thing about it. I think it, it destroys their own client's case to a large extent. Um, and sometimes, you know, we will exhibit the correspondence or or put it in the court bundle to show really the nature of this you know very aggressive correspondence that is just a continuation of the aggression from the relationship because I think you know the judges need to see exactly what victims are having to put up with before it gets to court or in between hearings And, and sometimes it is necessary I think to highlight that um but there are ways and means I think of trying to, to to shut them down and to just narrow the issues um otherwise you know the, the bill would spiral out of control but most importantly that the client's health would just completely collapse under the weight of all of that um so you know if it's not relevant don't answer it yeah I, I just you know see that there's no punishment for it there doesn't seem to be any regulation on it and I know that if say for example an accountant or a teacher mm-hmm. spoke to somebody in that way they'd be struck off yet for a, for a lawyer representing a client that's okay I just in my mind I just don't understand it seems to be you know a really you know a cesspit of rules and regulations and it's a free-for-all I think there's almost you know, I think there's kind of a tradition of divorce lawyers being seen as really aggressive, as though that's a good thing. Um, but most lawyers nowadays are members of what they call Resolution, which is um, an organisation which governs family lawyers. And, you know, if you look up um, that on the internet, you can see which lawyers are members of it or not. And one of the big things about resolution is that you do work together and you're not aggressive, um, that you're focused on the children in particular, but even in cases without children, that everything is done with a view to keeping things amicable. Because at the end of the day, these people may well need to stay in touch for the next 15, 20 years or, or whatever. And it's not about trying to destroy people's lives. It's about trying to help them constructively reach a solution um so that's what kind of resolutions say however there are lots of lawyers that i know that are members of resolution that do not act in that way and you know i'm not sure a resolution ever do anything about it i've, I've certainly never known it 
um, and perhaps they should because I really don't think it helps anybody, um, including their own clients. Um, it doesn't help the courts in terms of you know having this huge, highly emotive, very, very long court case where the perpetrator wants to litigate every single issue um, you know, it's wasting the court time, it's costing everybody, you know, too much money and it's destroying the participants. So, you know, perhaps lawyers do need to be reined in by either the law society or a resolution if they are being unnecessarily aggressive like that. Um, I think it, it's time things change. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of clients would be terrified to report their law firm or a law firm fear of repercussions of going up against some of those you know some of them are big name law firms it'd be, be yeah. terrifying for them you've gone through your own divorce you've got you're dif- you're divorcing a difficult person as it is yeah. you know, it's another level but do you think the family courts understand domestic abuse what kind of training do legal professionals have to have um so how long have we got for this question um i don't think the courts understand domestic abuse and I think there is a realisation now um, that the courts haven't got a clue about coercive control in particular. So I think whilst, you know, you can expect to get justice if you walk into a family court with a black eye um, or, you know, show a judge medical records of a broken arm, etc. I think that kind of abuse tends to be dealt with properly. But if you walk into a court and start talking about um, coercive control or stalking, um, then unfortunately, I think you'll be let down in the majority of cases by by judges, by casts, you know, by most lawyers, to be honest, within within the system. And I think that is a realisation, both from professionals within it, it's starting to, to be, um, and even judges. You know, I was reading a case this morning um, where, you know, a judge in the High Court kind of admitted that coercive control wasn't understood by most of, you know, the court's uh, professionals and judiciary and things needed to change. You know, things like what we call finding of fact hearings, which are are like trials within a, a court process to look at who did what. So... You know, a victim might say he's done this, this and this. And often those finding of fact hearings are restricted by the judge to five allegations. Well, how can you ever illustrate coercive control and 20 years of domestic terrorism in five incidents? It just is impossible. And again, the judge in that case kind of agreed with that. Um, and said it is about a pattern and it's about looking at it as a whole rather than looking at individual incidents. So there was also a report last summer which was undertaken in relation to how the courts deal with domestic abuse and it was fairly damning, even though, you know, it was written by um, lawyers as well. It was very critical of the way that domestic abuse, in particular coercive control, is dealt with. It was very critical of finding the fact hearings. So I do feel as though we are on the cusp of a change and that, you know, in the next probably two years, we won't have such a thing as finding the fact hearings. I think they will go 
there is um, within the domestic abuse bill, um, there was an amendment for compulsory training for family court members. And, you know, that is something that's desperately needed. But it needs to be proper training. It needs to be intensive training, not just, yes, I can tick the box that I, you know, watch that webinar kind of thing. You know, within resolution, for example, there's a domestic abuse specialism. And I know some of the people that have got that specialism that have never dealt with a domestic abuse case in their life or not since they were a training solicitor. Um, but, they, you know, it's a fairly easy accreditation to get. Um, you know, if you can research the law, you can pass that exam. And obviously lawyers can do that. So I do think there needs to be some real intensive training for judges and CAFCAS, um, as well as lawyers, but particularly CAFCAS and, and judges, because they're the people that are actually making the decisions. The lawyers don't make the decisions. And to me, there needs to be consequences as well. You know, I think there's a big thing of people feeling, feeling failed in the family court. And being failed in the family court potentially means the children are therefore placed at risk by the family court, which is a really serious thing to happen. Yet we never really see any consequences for CAFCAS officers or judges. You know, they are criticised by an appeal court, perhaps. But many of domestic abuse cases never get to an appeal. Um, again, you know, many victims can't afford to take it to an appeal. So, you know, we're not really seeing the reality of it in the higher courts. Um, but certainly I think there's a recognition what I would say on the downside is that there is also a building kind of movement in relation to what they call parental alienation, which often is used, in my view, by abusive parents. So when a victim makes allegations about the other parent that you know, generally he has been abusive within the relationship, it seems to be the go-to strategy now that that alleged perpetrator will then say, well, She's making this up, she, she's doing it maliciously and she's trying to turn the children against me. When actually the children may be genuinely scared of their father for a good reason. So, you know, I am concerned about that movement and that's kind of seems to be going head on with recognition of, of domestic abuse and coercive control. So it's not, the battle isn't over by any means, um, but, but there does seem to be, you know, the right sound being made from some quarters. So I've got my fingers crossed that the right thing will happen. Uh, yeah. But I think a lot of it comes down to the actual experts that are appointed as well and the whole system of appointing court experts. You know, I mean, really anybody could become a court expert um, and, you know, they don't have to be good at what they do. Um, and they could also have bias, even though in the court rules yeah. that they should not be biased. There's no vetting process to ensure they're not. So obviously they can have a big bearing on a case, right? Yeah, and I think more work needs to be done in relation to that. You know, in particular, some of the niche areas like parental alienation, for example, there's a lot of controversy around that and around some of the um, so-called experts within that sphere. So, you know, in my view, I think, you know, court experts should be accredited and should be able to lose. That's the important thing, that you should be able to lose your accreditation. Um, you know, a lot of the, when we talked about aggressive lawyers, a lot of them will have a domestic abuse accreditation. 
I've never known anybody lose it, you know, so maybe there needs to be more of that and saying, you know, if you want to work in these cases, for example, in the criminal system, if you're, if you want to prosecute um, a sexual assault case, a rape case, then as a prosecutor, you, you are supposed to be accredited in order to do that because there are additional skills needed for that kind of case. I think the same should apply to domestic abuse and perhaps you should only be able to deal with them, you know, from both sides of the, the coin if you are accredited in it. You know, if not, then you shouldn't be allowed to deal with those cases because, you know, they are being dealt with across the board generally, not very well. So, you know, the, I think there is a big change on the horizon. It's just can't come fast enough. A big change is needed. It really is. So you've written a book, which I'm very excited about. Tell us about the book. I know a barrister called it a brilliant guide. So tell us about your book, what it's called and where we can get a copy. So I was asked to write a book about coercive control and um, the publisher specialises in um, books for lawyers. So the publisher asked me to write it for other lawyers. Um, and I sat down and started putting some ideas together. And then I thought, actually, whilst, you know, I do think that it's helpful for other lawyers to read as well, because I think a lot, a lot of lawyers miss the coercive control um, aspects, because very rarely do you get a client. More and more often you are doing now, but quite often you'll get a client that never says the words coercive control. They won't say to the police, I want to report coercive control they will tell you about their experience and it's only by recognising that as coercive control that you're able to give the, the client the language really to be able to describe it. And I think because of that, it kind of goes under the radar way too often with lawyers and CAFCAS, etc. So I do think it's a helpful book for professionals, but I also could see that there were lots of people who contacted me on Twitter or by email and just say, you know, I can't afford a lawyer and I'm not eligible for legal aid either because it's very difficult to get legal aid now, but I'm really struggling in this system that seems to be stacked against me and I, I just don't know what to do. So when it came to writing the book, um, I decided not to kind of aim it just at lawyers. I, I tried to write it in such a way that it was for, you know, kind of normal people, litigants in person that were going through the system and just thinking, what on earth is this about? I just don't know what to do. So I tried to put kind of some tips and tactics in there for victims of things that you need to look out for, things to help you, you know, make sure the judge is following this particular protocol, make sure you've asked for this. Um, and just explaining, I suppose, some of the legal principles to victims that might be struggling with it. And I know people that have contacted me that have read it themselves and then, you know, even if they felt their lawyer hasn't really got it, they've been able to at least have a conversation then with their lawyer about, you know, I've been reading up about this, can we talk about maybe trying this particular tactic? Um, so... So, yeah, it, it's aimed at just as much um, at litigants in person, people without any legal knowledge, as it is um, towards lawyers, really, because I just think, you know, you are so vulnerable when you're in the um, in the family court without any representation. It's like being in the lion's den sometimes. 
even as a lawyer, it can feel like that. So I can't imagine what it's like to be in there without a lawyer. Um, so it's something I felt really strongly about. And fortunately, the, the publisher agreed, because like I say, most of their line of books are generally aimed at lawyers. So um, I'm really pleased that it's helped, you know, some victims manage their way through it. Absolutely. So it's called A Practical Guide to Coercive Control for Legal Practitioners and Victims. And yeah. we can get it on Amazon, can we? You can get it on Amazon. Um, if you contact me on Twitter, we're probably the easiest way rather than giving you my really long email address. Um, my um, Twitter handle is at Rachel Horman. That's H-O-R-M-A-N. And um, if you message me, I can give you a discount code so that you can get a discount um, on the book. Amazing. So thanks ever so much. I mean, this has been fascinating. And I could talk to you for a very, very long time, hours and hours. But um, one question I always ask my guests is, what is happiness to you? Because obviously, when you're coming out of heartbreak, especially if you're divorcing a difficult person, you know, how do you you know, how do you get yourself back on track, I guess, is what lots of my listeners will be thinking. So mm. what is happiness for you now, Rachel, given what you do day in, day out? Everyone thinks it's a really depressing job that I do, but actually I don't find it depressing. I find it hugely rewarding. So, you know, just helping somebody, even in an impossible situation where, you know, we never have a magic wand. We can never cure the situation for them or necessarily get them what they want. But just helping them to, to manage it or deal with it better brings its own rewards. But you have to be able to switch off as well. Um, and that's something that's really important. Um, and for me, it's being outside. Um, and I think, you know, during lockdown I think it's made us all realise probably what it is in life that we particularly missed and, and what we hold dear and for me it's getting out there walking um, in the hills um, with the dogs and just kind of forgetting you know the, the stresses of work really and that's the one place I know I can go to switch off and I just think it helps you sometimes put things in perspective you know you might set off on a walk you know, thinking about a particular problem or a particular case, thinking, what am I going to do about this next week? Um, and usually by the end of the walk, you've managed to either come up with a solution or just reframe it in your mind a little bit and kind of it, it sits in a better place and it doesn't seem as much of an issue. Um, and, and I just think any worry is, is vastly reduced by the end of a walk. Um, even if at the beginning you don't really want to go on it, um, it might be windy and cold. Um, you know, I never regret going on a walk. And I just think, I know it sounds um, corny, but for me, that being outside in the elements is is just the thing for me that does it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree more. I'm a big fan of a walk or a brisk walk or even a jog at times. Yeah. But thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. I know that many of my listeners will have found that extremely, extremely helpful. Um, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to at Rachel Horman on Twitter to find out more about the work Rachel does. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. 
That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review in iTunes will win the chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day, including exclusive one-on-one coaching with Sara Davison herself. Be sure to head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Sara's gift. Then join us on the next episode.